have uh, children three to seven and you'd like for them to participate in our children's ministry, you're welcome to take them to the back of the room at this point to meet their teachers who will take them down to the room where they gather. Weddings are meant to be some of the most memorable events that we'll ever experience in our lives, whether you're the one getting married or you're just attending. They're to be memorable, of course, because marriage is one of the best gifts that Jesus has given to mankind. And so weddings should be overflowing with joy. They should be celebrations of God and this good gift that he gives and perhaps in some ways every other good gift as well. There are few celebrations that can top weddings. I think birthday parties and graduations don't even come close as far as I'm concerned. But unless you're married or you've served behind the scenes to help pull off a wedding and a wedding reception, you might be unaware of all the things that can and do go wrong on the big day. I'm sure some of you have had some of these things happen to you and you have some amusing stories of disasters that were barely avoided. Or, of course, you can look it up on YouTube, wedding fails, and you can chuckle along with all those disasters that weren't avoided. But today's scene at the beginning of John 2, it tells the true story of a wedding disaster that was only narrowly avoided by the gracious act of Jesus, the miracle worker. Only a few in attendance at this wedding knew what had almost happened. They were the privileged few who not only witnessed some wedding embarrassment being avoided, but they also witnessed the glory of the Son of God, and it inspired even deeper faith in them, in Him. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're in the Gospel of John. It's in the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's broken up into two portions, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament tells the story of God's work in the world prior to Jesus, and the New Testament tells the story of Jesus coming into the world and everything that God has been doing through Jesus and His Spirit in the world up until today. Turn with me to John 2, 1 through 11, and follow along with me as I read. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long to see your glory, the glory of the Son of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we dive into this text, we read your authoritative, inspired, inerrant word. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see your glory. Oh, Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the first chapter of his gospel, John has introduced us to Jesus as the son of God the Father who was with God from eternity past and is fully God himself, full of glory and grace and truth. He's been declared by John the Baptist to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, not just water. Disciples have begun gathering to him and they recognize him as the one who has been sent, who would be called the Messiah and the King of Israel, or the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. But even though these disciples already believe in Jesus, he had told them at the end of chapter 1 that they would see greater things, and that they would see that Jesus is literally the doorway to heaven himself. Right away then, here in chapter 2, at the beginning, they begin to see these greater things about Jesus. They begin to see his glory, and it inspires even more belief, deeper trust that he is the Messiah sent from God. John tells us in verse 11 what this whole story is really about and what we should learn from it. That this miracle at the wedding feast in Cana is Jesus' first sign. And look there with me at verse 11. It says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. As we consider this miracle, or as John calls them, signs, we should stand in awe of Jesus and his glory. And we too should be moved to deep trust and belief in Him. And so we can sum up the main point of this passage like this. Believe in Jesus whose miraculous gifts reveal His glory. Believe in Jesus whose miraculous gifts reveal His glory. Glory is one of those words that most of us have a feel for, but maybe struggle to describe because words just don't seem to ever do it justice, but we should try. Glory includes splendor and beauty and magnificence and radiance. Words like that describe glory. If you see the glory of God, you're seeing a physical display of His greatness and transcendence. To manifest His glory means to show forth, to put it on display. 
And when you see the glory of God, it inspires awe and sometimes even fear. We'll have a lot more to learn about glory as we move through the Gospel of John. Glory, the glory of Jesus Christ specifically was mentioned in that incredible verse 14 in the first chapter of John. We're going to see that glory can be hidden or revealed. It can be used as a verb. In other words, the Father glorifies the Son. And toward the end of John, Jesus speaks about giving glory to His disciples. But most importantly, in this passage, we see that Jesus Himself is glorious. I have two points in my outline this afternoon. And the first one is the glory at the Cana wedding. Glory at the Cana wedding. It's been three days since Jesus' encounter with Nathanael, and now Jesus and his disciples are back up north in Galilee. He and his mother and his disciples are in the town of Cana, and they're at a wedding. In verses 3 through 5, we listen in on one of the few conversations in Scripture that are between Jesus and his mother Mary. And there's a problem at the wedding that they're attending. There's always problems at weddings. The problem here is that the wine has run out. There's no more, and it must be far too early to simply tell people to go home because Jesus' mother approaches Jesus and tells him they have no wine. Before we press into the passage further, I think it's important to briefly say something about alcohol, about wine. The whole Bible teaches that alcohol, and particularly wine, is one of the good gifts that God has given to mankind. Wine in particular is almost always represents blessings from God when it's spoken about in Scripture. J.C. Ryle, the famous bishop of Liverpool, England, says, if our Lord Jesus Christ actually worked a miracle in order to supply wine at a marriage feast, it seems to me impossible to prove that drinking wine is sinful. Jesus drank wine. Still, the Scriptures also show from the Old Testament all the way throughout the New Testament that wine can be used inappropriately and create an opportunity for sin. Noah and Lot in the Old Testament got drunk and sinned with wine. The priest Eli has sons described in 1 Samuel as working at the temple and getting drunk all the time. Elders must not be drunkards or addicted to much wine. We've heard about that in recent sermons in the last few weeks from Titus. So we can quickly sum it up. Wine is a good gift from God which, like all of God's good gifts, including things like sex, can be abused. Now, there's some application for all of us here. Which do you tend toward? Denying that wine is a good gift from God? Or underestimating its potential for abuse? Which category do you fall into? It's worth your time to think about it. Back in our passage, Mary becomes aware that the wine has run out at the wedding reception. And that, of course, could have been terribly embarrassing to the bridegroom who was responsible for providing everything at the reception. 
There's no reason to think that Mary expects a miracle from Jesus when she turns to Him for help. He hasn't performed any miracles yet. It's likely that she simply expects Him to help solve the problem somehow. Jesus must have been a resourceful man in His youth. Jesus addresses her and says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, the way that Jesus addresses his mother might sound disrespectful, but it's not. At the same time, it's not the warmest of ways to address your mother. Jesus addresses his mother one more time, exactly like this in chapter 19, when he's hanging on the cross, giving John the responsibility of taking care of Mary after he dies. The NIV translates this, dear woman. Another commentary says about the way Jesus addresses his mother, it established a polite but firm distance between them. <laughs> That's a careful way to put it. Jesus has become his begun his public ministry, you see, and throughout John we'll see that Jesus sees himself as only operating under the authority of the Father, no one else. And so we're seeing here in this interaction that there is some growing distance between he and his mother in terms of his direction in life. But what's more important here in this little interaction between Jesus and his mother is Jesus' comment about his hour. Mary would have had no idea what Jesus meant by this, but we do because we've already read the rest of the gospel. I suggest you do that if you haven't already. Jesus' hour is the time that would come when he would go to the cross to be crucified, to be buried, and then to raise from the dead. He finally announces that his hour has come when we get to chapter 12 and 13 and 17 on the day before his rest and crucifixion. One thing this reminds us of is that from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus knew what was coming. His arrest and crucifixion wasn't a surprise to him. It wasn't an accident. In his ministry leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus was following the plan and directions that he and the Father had already determined. There was nothing haphazard or random about Jesus' life and ministry. It all went according to plan. Mary finally leaves the problem of the lack of wine in Jesus' hands and tells the servants to do whatever he tells you. There's a certain kind of trust in Jesus in that statement, I think. Then verses 6 through 8 describe how Jesus interacts with the servants. It's in these verses, of course, that the miracle actually takes place and his glory begins to be revealed or manifested. There were six stone water jars so that the wedding guests could perform the Jewish rites of purification before eating. Each one of those stone water jars held 20 to 30 gallons of water and Jesus instructs the servants to fill the jars with water. And he tells them to draw some out then and take it to the master of the feast, which they do. Now, by this time, of course, the water has become wine. The miracle has happened. 
Did you notice that Jesus didn't have to say anything or touch anything? He simply willed that the water would become wine. He thought it, and it happened. Jesus reveals His glory and His greatness by changing the molecular structure of water to become the molecular structure of wine. H2O, or two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom, have become something entirely different. Jesus has complete power over every inch of His creation. As it says in Hebrews 1, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So if He upholds galaxies and solar systems, He also upholds atoms and molecules. And He can arrange them simply by willing it to happen. Not only does His awesome transforming power display His glory, but the quantity of water, now wine, should leave us in awe. Each of the stone jars were filled to the brim with water, it says. That's about 250 gallons or what would be over 750 bottles worth of wine. The party could have gone on for quite a while. It could be that the whole town of Cana was there, but the sheer quantity of wine that he's made points to Jesus' lavish power and the fact that Jesus always provides more than enough. When Jesus feeds a crowd of thousands from a few loaves of bread, it's not just barely enough. No, they pick up leftovers afterwards. And the same is true here with the wine. The plenty that he creates reveals His glory. But there's even more. In verses 9 and 10, we learn that the wine that Jesus has created is excellent. It's the best quality. When the master of the feast tastes the wine, he's stunned. The wine is so good. And he's puzzled because no one brings out the best wine last. That's not how you do it. They bring out the best wine first. And then when the guests have had some... In fact, the um, Christian Standard Bible says when the guests were drunk, <laughs> when they've had some and have become less discerning about the quality of the wine, you bring out the cheaper wine. But not Jesus. No, Jesus doesn't make cheap wine. Jesus makes award-winning wine. Jesus makes top-shelf Cabernet Sauvignon or delicious Chardonnay. Jesus' magnificence and glorious greatness is shown in the quality of the wine that He creates. Finally, I want you to note that Jesus saves this bridegroom from embarrassment and shame. Jesus could have drawn attention to Himself. He could have said, hey, everyone, gather around. Guess what? There's no wine left. But He didn't. And many of Jesus' signs that we will begin to see in the book of John, they will be more public in the coming pages. But Jesus' miracle done in secret was at least to save a vulnerable bridegroom's honor. It was done without an announcement in front of the wedding guests and even without the knowledge of the bridegroom himself. The disciples were privileged to see and understand what happened. And their awe and respect and love and reverent fear of Jesus just grew. They had believed 
but now they believe all the more. What about you? When you consider what Jesus has done here, do you, do you see the power of this miracle? No one but Jesus can turn water into wine. He's the powerful one. Do you recognize how the overflowing quantity of wine that he created reveals how Jesus always meets and exceeds our needs? Does it leave you shaking your head in awe that the excellent wine that Jesus created points to his personal, all-surpassing excellence? Are you glimpsing his glory in this miracle? Now, if you're not a Christian, what's your response to seeing what Jesus has done here at this wedding feast? I wonder, are you tempted to dismiss this as a fairy tale? It's not. This is an eyewitness account of Jesus' first sign, and it's just the first of what will be many signs that we're going to read about. It's, but this is the one that is the beginning, and it was for a small private audience. And now you are included in that audience as well. You get to glimpse this powerful miracle, this display of His glory that Jesus did on this day. What do you see in Jesus, I ask? Do you see His power and His love, even His deity? Will you believe in Him? Brothers and sisters, you and I need repeated fresh glimpses of the glory of Christ so that our belief and our faith in Him grows deeper and stronger day by day until we wait for His return, as we wait for His return, and until He returns. We get distracted by the novelties in the world around us, don't we? Michael led us in prayer during his pastoral prayer about just that. Our attention is so easily drawn away from looking on Christ with eyes of faith. Look on Christ, the miracle winemaker, and see His glory again. Be slow to look away. Be hesitant to move on to what seems like more pressing matters in your life. As a Christian, you cannot see His glory too much. Moses begged to see the glory of God on the mountain. Thelma read that to us earlier in the the service. And he only got to see the backside of the Lord. But we, we get to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Don't turn away. Seeing the glory of Christ is a part of what continually transforms us into ever-maturing disciples of Christ. Transforming water into an overflowing and excellent wine to save the embarrassment of an ill-prepared bridegroom reveals Jesus' glory. But we can look even deeper at the meaning of this miracle to see even more of what Jesus' disciples saw that day. The second point this afternoon is glory at the heavenly wedding. The first was glory at the Cana wedding. This is glory at the heavenly wedding. 
We already noted earlier that throughout the Old Testament, wine is a symbol of blessing from the Lord, but it's a symbol of blessing to come, a symbol of blessing that God poured out in the past and which He plans to pour out in an even greater way in the future. And with the arrival of Jesus in the world, that future time of blessing in our passage was breaking into the world. The Jews were waiting, of course, for the moment when God would send His rescuer into the world, the Messiah, to conquer His enemies and restore Israel. All the prophets spoke about it in one way or another, and it's often spoken of as a feast with plentiful food and, you guessed it, overflowing wine. Amos 9, verses 13 and 15, listen to them. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. What a promise. And the prophet Isaiah foretold the time of God's rescue in the future. And he described it in passages like Isaiah chapter 25. In verses 6 through 9, Isaiah says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. When Jesus turned the water into overflowing, excellent wine, the disciples had their belief in Jesus confirmed the day had begun to come. Jesus' Cana wedding miracle showed them that He was the Lord in human flesh come into the world who would one day prepare a great wedding feast, a feast of rich food and well-aged wine like Isaiah promised. They could see that Jesus was in effect pulling back the curtains for them to see that He had come to usher in the Messianic kingdom. It wasn't His hour yet, but the miracle wine at Cana was pointing them to the coming heavenly wedding feast supplied by the Messiah. It would be supplied by Jesus. He was the Lord they were waiting for to save them. In order to save them, of course, in order to save them to the Messiah's wedding feast, He had to save them from the judgment that they deserved. In order to be a welcomed guest at the coming heavenly wedding feast, Jesus the Messiah would have to purify them and us. The hour was coming, of course, when Jesus would go to the cross. Cana was a glimpse of His glory, but the cross, the cross would be 
a full display of His glory. Since the day that Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, every man and woman has turned their back on God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've come up short of what we were created for, to love and obey God, and in doing that, bring Him glory. We don't deserve a seat at His banqueting table. In fact, we deserve the opposite. We deserve death. But Christ came into the world to, as Isaiah promised, swallow up death forever, like the passage says. And so He went to the cross to die the death we deserve, to take our punishment on Himself, and whoever believes in Him becomes His bride at the future heavenly wedding feast. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist's disciples will ask him about Jesus. And in his reply, he refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. Throughout the Old Testament, God is often referred to as Israel's bridegroom. Israel is the bride, God is the bridegroom. And here in Cana, we see that Jesus is that bridegroom who won't come up short. He won't be ill-prepared. And He will supply all that we need to be welcome at the heavenly wedding feast to come. Christians together, together as a church, as an individual local church, and together with all churches throughout all of time, we are the bride of Christ. Through the preaching of the gospel, Jesus is gathering everyone who will be wed to him forever in heaven. And there, there in heaven, Jesus will fulfill all the covenant blessings promised by God. Like the abundance of the wine at Cana, life in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus will be abundant and full. It will be always overflowing. You will not lack anything. Life, like the excellence of the wine at Cana, eternal life with Christ will be life to the fullest, far, far better than your most contented moments now, and far, far more satisfying than anything you've ever known. Jesus is the bridegroom who will host us, His bride, at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9 describe it. Then I heard what seemed like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There we will get more than a glimpse of the glory of God in Christ. We will behold Him face to face. And we too will be glorious. In just a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And in doing that, we are, in effect, practicing for that day to come. 
that day to come when we will have a feast laid before us and we will drink that well-aged wine that Jesus provides. Oh, we look forward to that day. Do you want to be there? You can. You can. Keep your eyes on this glorious Savior, Jesus. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. He gives the greatest of miraculous gifts, both now and more importantly, at that great wedding supper to come. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You sent Jesus into the world to fulfill all the covenant promises that You ever made. Lord, we praise You that in Jesus we have a grand yes to all those promises. They will come true. They are coming true. It's guaranteed by You. Lord, give us deeper faith in Jesus. Help us see His glory from day to day even more. And we pray, Lord, that You would open the eyes of all those around us as we proclaim Him and point to Him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.